Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Aldo Vaca, the Managing Director of the Protetory de Barbaresco on the show today. Hello, sir. How are you? Glad to be here. So these are wines I've admired for a long time, and it's been a, quite an important story for this area of the Piemonte. It's also an area you grew up in, and your dad and grandfather were both involved with this cooperative, right? Yes. So my joke is that uh, the family doesn't own the winery, but the winery owns the family, probably. <laughs> Actually, my grand-grandfather was one of the original nine... Uh, Barbaresco landowners who, together with Mr. Domizio Cavazza in 1894, started the first Cantina Sociale wine cooperative in town in the castle. That company was closed in the 20s. Then both my grandfathers from both sides of the family were among the original 19 founders of the Produttori del Barbaresco, founded in 1958. So there were really two cooperatives. One started yes. and it was kind of a big deal. And then it, it ended. Exactly. We, it wasn't really called a cooperative. It was more called a cantina sociale. But basically, thanks to the vision of this man, Domizio Cavazza, which is considered the father of Barbaresco, he was a um, viticulturist, an agronomist, a brilliant mind, originally from Emilia-Romagna near Bologna. And he moved to Barbaresco in 1888 because he was hired to be the director of the first director of the Wine School of Alba which was founded in 1988. So he moved to the region and decided to live uh, in the village of Barbaresco. He bought the castle, you know, things that people could do in those days. And uh, he started to run the wine school in Alba, but also took, of course, an interest in the village uh, life, uh, the village uh, wine. And it's, in a way, he could see the potential of Barbaresco. You know, of course, wine was made in the village at that point for you know, a few centuries probably, but there wasn't such a thing as a Barbaresco wine. Barolo was already on the map with the name Barolo. But Barbaresco, you know, the Nebbiolo grape was grown there, same grape, sometimes was turned into red wine, decent. Most of the time, the grapes were sold to make Barolo. There was not an official appellation at that point. And in fact, the first thing that Mr. Cavazza did in those years he started to lobby with the powers in Barolo in order to enlarge the Barolo region, to make it bigger, to use all the Nebbiolo grapes grown around the town of Alba, including the Nebbiolo grapes from Barbaresco, from the Roero and other villages, 
to make this wine Barolo. So you could have a established name, Barolo. You could have more volume of grapes. And you could have a town, Alba, as a center of uh, marketing, research, uh, communication. So he was thinking uh, big. He was thinking a little bit like Bordeaux, you know, a large uh, town and a large area. Or Champagne, same concept. Of course, it seems uh, silly to say now, but the Barolo was uh, you know, 15 miles away from Alba on dirty roads, no train stations, no telephones. It was like a world apart. He could see the potential of growing thanks to more volume. But of course, he was also want, wanted to put Barbaresco village on the map as one of the Barolo towns. But of course, the Barolo people were not interested in that, as you can imagine. So he didn't give up. Instead of uh, simply forget about it, he basically thought, okay, if you don't want Barbaresco to be one of the Barolo towns, just like Serralunga or Monforte or Castiglione Faletto, I'm going to make a wine here. And if you call it Barolo over there, well, I'm going to call it Barbaresco. So really, the beginning of uh, Barbaresco as a real wine, we kind of dated to 1894 when Mr. Cavazza founded his winery in uh, the castle of Barbaresco. But the interesting thing that maybe because he was uh, very busy in the wine school, or we like to think because he was a very generous man, he didn't start to make his own wine. He convinced nine landowners, again, including my grand-grandfather, and then the Bishop of Alba and a couple of generals from the Royal Army who had land in Barbaresco. He convinced them to deliver their Nebbiolo grapes to the castle in order to make wine together and sell it under the name of the Cantina Sociale del Castello. Of course, he could use uh, his knowledge because he was the director of the wine school and they could use all the vineyards of these uh, fellows to make an impact on the market. So that, uh, that was the original wine cooperative if you want to call that so, founded in Barbaresco in 1894. And it was a brilliant start for the village and for the wine because, of course, he made very good wine and he started to get a reputation for it. Then he, he drew or had a poster drawn, a, a knight holding a barrel of Barbaresco, which we still use these days on our single vineyards labels. And finally, he drew a map of the village of Barbaresco with red dots where the best vineyards where and some of these vineyards, the Rivo Sordo, Pora with double R, Monte Stefano are the vineyards that we still know now. So to recognize the value of vineyards of terroir back in the 19th century in Italy was very much ahead of his own times, the guy. Unfortunately, you know, history goes his own way. Uh, Mr. Cavazza died in 1913, relatively young, and then we had First World War that started. And after the war, with uh, you know, the different economy, and then we had fascism and depression in the 20s. Without him, without his vision, the winery was closed at the end of the 20s. First, the castle was sold to a private family that kept the logo of Cantina Sociale, but was really one single family. The name was Manzo family, releasing the wine from their own vineyards. And finally, was, uh, the experiment failed. So that's how the first cooperative in Barbaresco ended. So it really didn't get started again until the 50s. Yes, 58 is when uh, the produttori was reborn. Now, the first part of the century was uh, tough because First World War, then Depression, Fascism, Second World War. So not much happened in Barbaresco with the exception of the Gaia family getting prominence as a fine wine producer of the region. But in the 50s, Barbaresco was still pretty much a village of farmers, small farmers growing several crops, not just grapes, selling out those crops 
into the open market, trying to make a living. Uh, things uh, were just about to change quite dramatically. Two things happened. In 1954, a young priest, his name was Don Fiorino, was appointed by the bishop to run the Barbaresco parish. He was young, he was uh, dynamic. Of course, he found himself uh, pretty much involved in the social life of the village. And he kept on hearing these uh, extraordinary stories told in the village about Domizio Cavazza and the first cooperative in the castle, how that group of uh, landowners were able to work together and make wine. So the priest said, wait, wait a minute, we can do this again. So he started to push the fellow villagers to do it again, to convince uh, 19 farmers how together they could achieve something that would have been impossible to do on their own in those days. No, each of these farmers were just too small to have their own winery. But by grouping together, they would have been uh, have a chance. So that's what they did. They bought a little piece of land across the street from the church in the main square. They built the first part of the winery. They're still there these days. And they stopped selling grapes and started to make wine. Wine cooperatives were founded all over Europe in those days, as we know. And whenever you travel the old world in search of good wine and food, you come across a wine cooperative anywhere, from Alsace to Portugal to Sicily. Most of these wine cooperatives ended up producing everyday wines, decent, occasionally good, but that was the wine cooperative pattern. But Produttori was an exception since day one, thanks to the vision of Don Fiorino and thanks to this uh, crucial decision they took. A number of decisions, but the most important one was to focus on... Uh, one grape only, Nebbiolo, and one wine only, Barbaresco. They did that because the fire was burning under the ashes. They had this memory of what Cavazza did back in the 19th century, making Barbaresco or calling the wine with the name of the village with the Nebbiolo grape. So they wanted to do it again. Because in those days, it was much easier to sell Dolcetto, to sell Barbera. In fact, until the early 70s, I remember as a kid, my father was telling me a ton of Dolcetto grapes was more expensive than a ton of Nebbiolo grapes on the open market. Then Finnish wine, the Barbaresco was more expensive, but it was easier for farmers to grow Dolcetto, Barbera. There was a market for those grapes because people, that's what the type of wines that people were drinking on an everyday basis. But they decided, no, we are going to make Barbaresco only. We're going to focus on this. And because of that decision, they forced themselves to walk the quality pattern. Now, in the 60s, in Italy, it was very common for a winery in general, for a cooperative in particular, to make a lot of cheap wine. That was the demand from the market. But they said, no, we are going to make Barbaresco. And Barbaresco never had the low-end market. Now, if you make a Barbera, you can make an excellent Barbera, or you can make a cheap Barbera, you found your way out. But Barbaresco, it was only high-end. And so that decision was crucial to define the reputation of the winery. And your dad, Celestino, worked at the Proletoria at that time. Yes. So again, my family is very much linked because among the 19 founders of Produttori, both my grandfathers from both sides of the family joined the priest to start the company. And of the 19 families, the only young man with a university degree was my dad. Everybody else had like third grade, fifth grade at the Magno. They were farmers. So he was the only one that got to go to school. And so basically they told him, you run the business. You're the only one capable of doing it. So my father was, you know, he was called the segretario, secretary 
managing director, we say these days, of Produttori from 58 to 84. But it was a part-time job for him until 1972. So I remember as a kid, you know, the late 60s, my father was going to Barbaresco every Wednesday night and every Friday night for bookkeeping at the winery and every weekend to sell the wine at the winery next to the church. My mother wasn't the happiest wife because he was always busy. His first job was in Alba in the Ferrero Chocolate Company. And so there was not enough sales and not enough business for Produttori to support a full-time director. Only in 1972, he was able to quit his job and become full-time director of Produttori. And the other funny story is that of the 19 families of farmers, one family last name was Rocca. One guy was limping. We had a, a problem in one uh, leg. He was limping, so he couldn't really work in the vineyard. So they told him, you're going to make the wine. So Giorgio Rocca was the cellar master, or the winemaker, you can we say these days, from 58 to 1974, because he couldn't really be so effective in the vineyard work. So you probably met him as a kid. Yes. I remember him limping and making the wine. Just making the wine the way he, no, he knew it was has to be made in a very, you know, um, we say now unprofessional way. By the early 70s, they hired a consulting winemaker, which was basically an enologist who was coming to check the malolactic and you know, the pH, make sure that things were going well. But only in 1984, they hired first time a professional full-time winemaker. So now the beginnings were kind of pioneeristic, but... Uh, Again, things were moving fast in Barbaresco because Produttori was founded in 58. And another crucial fact that happened, happened in 1961. Uh, 1961 is really the, a turning point in the modern history of Barbaresco because Produttori was founded in 58. The first couple of vintages were sold in bulk in the spring to make some cash. 1960 was a bad vintage. 1961, exceptional vintage, we started to release more wine in the bottles with a label in a more consistent way. But also in 1961, the Gaia family decided to become 100% estate bottling. Now, Gaia was an established winery that happened to be based in Barbaresco, but they were making Barolo, Barbaresco, Asti Spumante, Barbera, Dolcetto, like anybody else in the air. No mainly by buying grapes, because wineries were buying grapes in the 50s. Now, farmers were owning land, wineries were buying grapes, very distinct. But Guy, of course, was another personality ahead of his own time, so he realized that it was important to own land. So they bought a lot of vineyards in the 50s, and because they were based in Barbaresco, they bought a lot of land in Barbaresco. So the story goes that the young Angelo Gaia told to his father in 1961, Dad, now we have enough land. We can finally stop buying grapes and we can focus on our own estate vineyards because if we want to become like a Bordeaux Chateau, we cannot make wine with uh, both grapes. We have to focus on our own production. And his father, Giovanni, said, yeah, that's fine, but how are we going to make Barolo? We don't have any land in Barolo. At that point, Angelo said, we're going to stop making Barolo. And that was a bold move for a established winery in the region. But thanks to them move, Barbaresco became the flagship of Gaia. So it's, uh, it was, again, a turning point, and it was uh, at that point that the, the synergy works 
beautifully because Nogaya made all the world talk about Barbaresco and Produttori was able to make the world drink Barbaresco because of the different price level, of course. So do you think that more people joined uh, Produttori after that decision because perhaps they didn't have the outlet to sell to Gaia? So they... That, it's a possibility, but of course, for them, it was also easy to sell to other wineries. Now, other, there's many wineries that came to Barbaresco to buy grapes, Fontana Fredda, Cerreto, wineries that don't exist anymore these days, Bersano, Calissano. So it was easy to sell grapes. But of course, the price was set by the buyers and was usually very low. In fact, the one important aspect of the Borno Produttori in 1958 it was that all of a sudden, there were less Nebbiolo grapes available on the open market to buy, and so the price started to go up a little bit. Actually, the sad part of the story is that the priest, Don Fiorino, which was so quintessential in the born of the Produttori de Barbaresco, was moved to another village in 1964. Probably the bishop received some phone call from some angry negotiante that said, the guy over there is doing something not so good for us. <laughs> so he got to be moved. He was never involved in the running of the operation, but it was definitely the inspiration for the farmers to get together. So yeah, the, the decision to join Produttori, you know, it, was, uh, it was not simple. I remember now at the beginning, my father was telling me that uh, some of the farmers, they wanted to join, but they wanted also to deliver their Dolcetto grapes, their Barbera grapes. They wanted the winery to make all the different wines because those were the bread and butter, easy to sell, but they resisted, you know, thanks uh, to the vision of my dad and a couple of other uh, the founders. They kept with that golden rule, Nebbiolo only, and that proved uh, important and successful, but it wasn't a normal decision. In fact, even nowadays, we are the only winery in the Lange region to focus on one grape only. It's becoming much more the norm because basically what is happening now, we are nebulizing the Lange. No? There's more and more Nebbiolo planted, even outside Barbaresco, outside Barolo. Nebbiolo is now the dominating varietal. But in those days, it was the most famous, but not the most planted by far. 61 would have coincided about with when the new cellar opened as well, right? Because the first couple of vintages were made below the tower, right? Yes. While they were building the cellar themselves with the help of an architect who was signing the project, they vinified the grapes in the, the priest basement. Not really the church, but where the priest was living down the street. To make it some wine, selling it in bulk, bottling a little bit just for the fun of it. But the first operational vintage for the actual cellar where we are working now was 1961. So again, a very crucial turning point. And originally it was one wine for a number of vintages. Yes, for about 10 years. The first release of single vineyards was 1967. Actually, quite early, if you think about a cooperative in the 60s, thinking about single vineyards. Uh, Gaia, Bruno Giacosa also started to release single vineyards in... Uh, 67. Now, the first single vineyards from Barolo, probably 61. I remember Ratti, 65, Marcenasco. The early 60s uh, was the moment when we started to look more and more toward Burgundy. The concept of vineyard was always very clear. In fact, in the Cavazza map, the red dots for the best vineyards were already there. So the fact that some vineyards were delivering better grapes or just different grapes maybe a little more color on one side, a little more tannin on the other side, was always evident. But the classic idea was to get grapes from the best vineyards and blend them together to make the perfect Barbaresco or the perfect Barolo. It was also due to the fact that 
again, most of the Barolo and Barbaresco were made by negociant buying grapes. So when you buy grapes, of course, you want to buy from the best vineyards, but you don't really want those vineyards to be famous. Otherwise, next year, you got to pay more money for, for the grapes. So as long as the wine was made by negociant, it was more, the focus was more on the brand than the vineyard. But the 60s, things were changing. So at that point, when you make wine from your own land, you want that land to be famous. And if it's already known as a top vineyard, then, no, I want to put that name on the label. So the movement of putting the single vineyard name on the label in the Lange in a significant commercial way really started in the 60s. And we were, we did in 67. We released five single vineyards in 1967. And then we added the Nebbiolo Lange or Lange Nebbiolo in 1975. What was the period of the 70s like? Did you ever talk to your dad about what the situation for the Protatory was at that time? It was a, a cold decade, <laughs> climate-wise, so a lot of bad vintages. <laughs> it was tough. You know? The demand was smaller than the supply, the opposite of now. So now I feel lucky because I work in a very easy environment, but those days were tough. Some of the wine was always sold in bulk, you know, the lower end, uh, sometimes half of the production, sometimes 30%. Now, since the last 25 years, we bottle 100% of the production. The 70s was in general tough in the area because a lot of rain, a lot of cold uh, uh, September, so a lot of uh, underripe grapes year after year. And that's why people started to think an, uh, an alternative to Barolo and Barbaresco, and the idea of Lange Nebbiolo came up. Because uh, honestly, you know, a lot of wineries, they just had a lot of grapes in their cellar that were not suited to make Barolo or to make Barbaresco. So, no, let's make a younger wine. So Lange Nebbiolo started as a second label for Barolo and Barbaresco in the mid-70s. And when Barolo and Barbaresco became DOCG in 1981, at that point, Lange Nebbiolo became DOC, before we were just uh, Vino da Tavola. Those were also the years when, uh, you know, if you remember, there was the, the fashion of Nouvelle Cuisine, so lighter food, lighter wine, no more fish than meat. And Barolo and Barbaresco were really off mark. Now they were cut completely out of fashion at that point. So a number of bad vintages, a market requiring lighter food and lighter wines, it was very difficult to sell Barolo and Barbaresco. Now we had some great vintages, of course, but it was very much a niche market. Lange Nebbiolo is changing dramatically now because what it was, a second wine for Barolo and Barbaresco, is gradually becoming a wine on its own, more and more. Uh, I remember when it was very difficult to sell it, especially on the export market. It was mainly drunk, not even domestically, more like locally. And, of course, being uh, made with a second-grade uh, Nebbiolo grapes from Barolo and Barbaresco, it tended to be a little acidic, a little sour, not so ripe, you know, kind of aggressive. Unripe Nebbiolo can be, you know, not so pleasant. So Lange Nebbiolo was a difficult wine, but now with the change of climate, uh, in general, we have riper grapes, even from uh, less good exposed uh, vineyards, riper tannins, more balanced. So the Lange Nebbiolo in the last 20 years have been much more round and easy to vinify and to appreciate uh, from the public. So the market for Lange Nebbiolo is exploding is the fastest growing appellation in Piemonte. And is more and more a wine on its own, meaning that uh, 
less and less Barolo and Barbaresco producers are willing to downgrade potential Barolo juice or Barbaresco juice to make Lange Nebbiolo. So what they're doing, they're planting Nebbiolo grapes outside the Barbaresco appellation or Barolo appellation just to make Lange Nebbiolo. Like Doliani. Like Doliani, Roero, etc. Yeah. But does that include you guys? No, or? and that's our point. Now, our Lange Nebbiolo is still 100% downgraded Barbaresco. In some vintages, like 2015, 2016, there was no technical reason to make a Lange Nebbiolo because every single grape, including young vines or the lower part of the hills, the east exposed, they were perfectly ripe and perfectly good to be Barbaresco. And that situation is becoming more and more the norm. So we are a little bit under a stressful situation because we want to make more Barbaresco and we have the potential good grapes to make it, but still uh, we cannot simply say no more Nebbiolo. So our Lange Nebbiolo is really becoming a, an incredible steal. <laughs> As an appellation, Lange Nebbiolo, you can add 15% of Barbera in the blend or we don't do that. And then of course the Lange appellation is much larger than Barbaresco, so you can source Nebbiolo from everywhere in the Lange, but we don't do it. So we are in the last few years, we are trying to make a little less in order to have more Barbaresco production. Theoretically, we make Lange Nebbiolo with young vineyards crop, but of course we don't have so many young vineyards every year. So there's always uh, some other vineyards that go in the blend, but it's no, very successful right now. So what happens now is that the trucks with the grapes come into the square of Barbaresco. They go onto a scale so that the grapes can be measured. And then you pay on a sliding scale from two euros to five euros based on an analysis of those grapes, right? Yes. In the beginning, from 58 to 98, we just measured the sugar level. Higher bricks, more money per kilo, per ton. And it was good enough because, again, before global warming, sugar was never enough. The whole struggle, the whole focus of every farmer was to have as much sugar as possible because with the sugar was coming also the aromatic, the color, everything. Because again, grapes were never overripe. That's something that was unheard in the region. But by the end of the 90s, things changed. So since 98, we are implementing a more precise uh, quality control. We measure for every single batch that comes sugar, color intensity, which is strictly connected with the aromatic complexity and the phenolic ripeness, so the ripeness of the tannins. So by measuring sugar, color, and tannin, we have a pretty good definition of the quality of that single batch. And based on those numbers, we then decide if it's going to be Lange Nebbiolo or Barbaresco. If it comes from Ovello and is good enough, it's going to go in the Ovello batch. If it comes from Ovello, but some problem, it may be downgraded to Barbaresco right there. So we take those decisions right there at the crushing station. But for the farmers, that's not really important. For All what it comes for the farmers are those three numbers because based on those numbers, it's going to be paid. And so what they do, they pick a different different plots at different times, you know, east exposed, west exposed, top of the hill, bottom of the hill. They take those decisions themselves. They know that when they come to the winery with the grapes, each single load is going to be checked and eventually paid in a different way. And something that you do actually is you post the payments in the town square, right? So it's a public document how much you pay yes. each grower. Yeah. And there's always you know, a little bit of rivalry who, who you get the highest bricks level, who you get the better color. Not much uh, of a real competition, but it's good to, it's good to keep them uh, focused on, on that. Now, they know it because at the end, it's more money in their pockets, but it's also nice to 
to give them that little bit of a feeling. For the same reason, when we release single vineyards, we write the name of the farmer's family whose grapes are used in the single vineyards on the back label. We always did it since 1967. It's this to give credit to the farmer, to have the farmer feel they're part of something special, which is important you know, to, to keep the, the focus of everybody. When you make that decision about these are potentially for a single crew and then these are for Langa Nebbiolo, actually the fermentation vessel is different. Yes. Uh, the vinification style is the same. Uh, we have uh, these days a smaller fermenting stainless steel tanks, about 50 hectoliters, that we use for the single vineyards. Then we have some 100 hectoliters tanks. We may use them for the bigger single vineyards like Ovello, Monte Stefano, or Pora. But then for the Barbaresco and the Nebbiolo, we still have some of the original concrete vats, which are inbuilt in the building, so we cannot get rid of them. So we keep them active. No, we can use we use for fermentation when we run out of space or we use for storage. So we say most of the Lange Nebbiolo is fermented in concrete, while Barbaresco and single vineyards are fermented in stainless steel with automatic temperature control, just a little easier to manage the temperature control there. All the wines spend uh, extensive time on uh, skins, you know, 20 days, 30 days. We do pump overs and then you submerge the cap, right? Yes. So pumping over twice a day or even three times, depending on the vintage, for the first week or so, when there is a lot of uh, fermentation going on, we keep the temperature around the 28 Celsius. We like to keep the temperature constant through the fermentation and we like the fermentation to start as soon as possible. We don't like the grapes to sit on the cold skins. So we, if it's necessary, if it's a late harvest, we warm up a little bit to just have the fermentation start. If it's an early harvest, usually it's not necessary. Uh, once the fermentation is over, you know, after a couple of weeks or 12 days and all the skins are at the bottom of the tank, but there's still some bubbling, you know, some little bit of fermentation going on, we just let it go. So we go bone dry on the skins. By the time we rack the wine off the skins, the wine is completely dry, has been sitting on the skins for three, four weeks. We don't mind, we like to extract as much as possible. The soft tannins, the harsh tannins, we don't, we don't care. We want to get everything. We are very confident on our terroir, very confident of the potential of the Nebbiolo grape. So we like to take it all from the skins. Uh, now there was, uh, from, especially in the 90s, there was a little bit of an inferiority complex in the region. No? A lot of winemakers thought that the wines are too tannic, the wines are too tight, we need to change them, we need to make them softer. So they tried all the way to improve the wines, uh, which you know, eventually was beneficial because it kept the winemakers more focused on, on working in the right uh, uh, way in the winery. But we never had that feeling that the wines were, were wrong. Yes, they were tight. They may require a few extra years to open up, but we rather have everything in and then give the wine some time to open up rather than taking something out and then missing something in the personality. So extensive time on the skins and minimal manipulation. Uh, 84, 85, there was someone doing a little less time on the skins, right? Yes, yes. Uh, the first winemaker that was hired in 1984, and again, those were times where now the, the idea of lighter wines, a little softer, became more fashionable. So he started to do like a little shorter maceration, and the wines came out a little lighter. There was not a very good reception. The vintage, 84 was a bad vintage, but 85 was okay, but they felt like they were like uh, missing something. So actually the first winemaker, then he left. 
I don't think he was fired, but he left in 1986 because he didn't really, you know, the, the board of farmers was kind of complaining on the style. So we hired a new winemaker, which is still working now, Gianni Testa, my colleague, in 1986. And they went back to a more traditional style, if you want to say. So it was, uh, they never used the new oak or small barrels, but they, they tried for a couple of years to make the wine a little lighter, but it didn't work. You know? Has there ever been use of stems? Has there ever been any whole cluster? No, uh, the the crushing machine we were using in the eighties, in the in the nineties, was destemming, but this the destemming was never perfect. So there were a little bit of stems left, but this now the Nebbiolo is very green stems, very tannic, bitter. So that was wasn't particularly good. So twenty years ago we got a new crashing machine, a little more updated. So now the destemming. It's much better, and we don't care for any stem in the fermentation process. Again, we like to leave the wine a long time on the skins, but no stems. And what kind of press is it? Pneumatic. Gentle pressure. We were used to have those vertical pressure that were pressing the skins very hard, getting a lot of in the press. Not so good, of course. Now, no, now in the last 30 years, we have this pneumatic press, which is much more gentle. So the skins, when they come out, they're still wet. You now, if you squeeze them, they still have some, uh, some juice in it. So they go to the distillery much softer. I think the grappa quality is better and the vin de press quality is better. We keep it separate uh, most of the time, but sometimes you know, in a weak vintage, you know, if uh, the Nebbiolo needs some help for the structure, we can actually use that so-called vintage press to give some backbone to the lighter wines. Again, lighter, weak vintages are almost a thing of the past these days, but no, they can always come back. These days you use mostly gamba, but there was garbolotto and never French wood, right? Um, Never French suppliers, but we have uh, some uh, gamba barrels made with French wood. So we have French barrels, French wood barrels uh, as well, oak. Our wines spend extensive time in oak, but they're all large barrels, 25 hectoliters, 50 hectoliters, 75, used for 20, 30 years. So even if the time in oak is long, the impact of the oak is minimal. We have now a combination of Slovenian and and French oak as well, but all the barrels are made uh, in Italy. The last 20 years, we've been uh, replacing all the old barrels. So we have barrels now that are 20 years old to new, not much uh, oak character in the wine at all, but uh, newer barrels helps to keep a clean wine too. And in the old days, I've seen Reserva Speciale, Barbaresco, Single Cruz from the Protatoria, and then later I've seen Reserva. So what's the difference between those two things? Reserva Speciale means one extra year of aging. Now, Reserva for Italian wines is simply a legal term. It means longer time before release, not even in wood. Of course, Normally you do it in wood, but it's just an extra time. So for Reserva is uh, two extra years, four years after the vintage, the release, and for Reserva Speciale is five years. But the Reserva Speciale was canceled by the DOCG sometime in the 80s, so it doesn't exist as an appellation. But we were used to do it, just now because we felt that our wines needed longer aging, and it was a way to force the winery to wait longer to release. Of course. The big problem with Barbaresco and Barolo is that normally they're released too soon. Our single vineyards, we still release them as reserva because at least we have to wait a couple of extra years before putting them on the market. Not that they're ready to drink when we release them, but they are a little closer to 
perfect uh, drinkability. I still remember as a kid in the 70s, in the 80s, uh, going to the few mission restaurants, the fine restaurants of the region with my father, you know, Da Guido, Da Cesare. And it was really considered gross for a restaurant like that to put a Barolo on the list or a Barbaresco that was not at least 10 years old. It was really kind of an unpolite thing. And now, of course, <laughs> you find them, not just because the wines are more drinkable, but because for, for restaurants to invest and buy you know, pallets of uh, Barolo and Barbaresco is uh, it's difficult because of the price and because the wineries say, I don't have enough wine for you. <laughs> So now it's quite kind of common to see you know, young Barolo on the wine list, but it wasn't the case back in the days. In the old days, would it have been the case that they would have bottled everything at the same time, or would have there have been multiple releases of the same wine? It's usual at least a couple of bottling. Like we bottle like in a 12-month period, just because you not know, the size of the winery is such. So, and... The wine normally is stored in either in concrete or stainless steel containers, so there's not much different from one bottle to the to the other. But yeah, that was normally the case, unless there was a bad vintage with very small production, so everything was bottled at once. But the logistic has always been that. So, are there people behind the scenes that perhaps we've never heard of that have left a big imprint on the potatory? Yeah, Gianni Testi is my way maker. Of course, people heard about him, but it's not very visible. He's been there since 1986. He's responsible for the great wines that we we produce has been uh, basically hired by Produttore as a student out of the wine school. So he learned there. He's been working since then with just one grape, so he gets very, very knowledgeable about Nebbiolo, I think. Um, the winery is run by a board. The board is formed by uh, nine farmers, elected by the other 54 once every three years. We have we hold this uh, vote, this election. So nine farmers are chosen to be the board. One of the nine is selected to be the president. So the president with the board, they basically take all the decisions. I meet with them, with the winemaker, once a month. And if we have to release the single vineyards or not, if we have to change some the price list, if you have to buy new barrels... It's usually either my or the winemaker suggestion, but it has to be decided by the board. It's the community effort. So you have nine crews today when you release them. You don't always release them. And then something I think that a lot of people don't know is that you actually have holdings that aren't in Barbaresco, Barbaresco. You have holdings in some of the other communes, but you don't make single crews from those. Yes, it's a little bit of a campanilistic, we say in Italian, decision. We like the idea that all our vineyards are from the village because the winery is really a Barbaresco, started really like as a Barbaresco village winery. It's based in the center of the village. The most historical vineyards are in the village itself. But we do have holdings in Cotta, in Bazarin, San Cristoforo. Potentially, we could add another one or two single vineyards to the nine that we are making now. We are making nine since 1978. We started with five in '67. In the 70s, we made four or five. You know, the occasionally, then from 78 is nine of them, and since then, it's either nine or none. So we either release the nine vineyards or we don't. Adding new vineyards, of course, takes good grapes away from the basic wine. So there's always a balance that you have to keep. The more single vineyards you, you make, the less good quality grapes you have available for the basic wine. So 
we thought that nine was a good uh, balance. In fact, uh, in uh, 2008, we turned 50, and I actually proposed to the board that maybe to celebrate the 50th anniversary, we, we could add another vineyard and make 10. But uh, finally, we, the project was rejected, so we're still making nine. Um, then it's a fascinating project, the nine single vineyards tasted together and made identically. It's like a walk through the terroir of Barbaresco. It's a beautiful experience. From a commercial point of view, now it's easy. I still remember no, when I started a Produttori in 1991, uh, not not all of them were so easy to sell. My American importer once told me, yeah, nine single vineyards, that's a good thing. It's six too many, but it's good. <laughs> so, you know, sometimes from a commercial point of view, especially for a restaurant, it's hard to carry nine vineyards. For collectors, it's different. So sometimes, you know, the idea, maybe we should focus only on three and four and forget about the others. We can have more volume on the Barbaresco and have a better quality. But then we we have this idea of walking through the terroir of Barbaresco when we present our vineyards. So it looks like it's going to be nine and no more. In Barbaresco, your vineyards are kind of laid out on two different ridges, and Rabaya is kind of where they meet, right? Exactly. If you look at the village of Barbaresco, you can imagine it as a J with two ridges that merge with one long ridge at the, at the top, and that one long ridge is Rabaya. So... From the Rabaya vineyard, if you look west, you see a ridge that goes toward the river and you meet uh, Martinenga, Azili, Facet, Pora, Rio Sordo, just a little south. From the very same point where Rabaya is, if you look north, you see the other ridge. And as you go north, you meet Moncagata, Monte Stefano, Monte Fico, Ovello. West and east. The west ridge, the ridge going uh, basically southeast to northwest, starting with the Rabaya, ending with the Pora, is where the slightly softer soil is with a little less calcium. So a little more delicate tannin, a little more gentle wines. Like the eastern part of the village, the south to north ridge that starts with Rabaya and ends with Ovello, is where the higher calcium uh, concentration is. So you have the more robust. Uh, Tannic wines, the 3M that we make, Moncagata, Monte Stefano, and Montefico are the, usually the more tannic. Rabaya is where the two characteristic meet. So it's kind of the quintessential. It's not as tannic as Monte Stefano or Moncagata, but is more powerful than Azili or Rio Sordo. It's really a perfect combination of the two terroirs of the village of Barbaresco. When you think about the ones that are tend to drink earlier, like Pora and Ovello, those are the ones with less calcium, right? Yeah, the Pora definitely. Ovello is very tricky because Ovello has high calcium, but it also has high clay. So it's a different combination. Ovello is a vineyard where the tennis are always a little aggressive, but very youthful. And the fruit is always bright and quite uh, attractive. So it's, yes, it's easy to appreciate young, but I can, Ovello normally ages very, very long. Like the Pora is more broad and open, a little more approachable. The Rio Sordo is very silky and soft. So I would say the two most approachable wines are Pora and Rio Sordo, while the more backward Montefico and Monte Stefano. And then Ovello is there in the middle. Did Domizio Cavazza provide any kind of ranking or notes about the vineyards? No, he had this, uh, I still have that, uh, the original uh, little map with these red dots. 
we like to think that the red dots were where the best vineyards were, the most famous. Uh, probably they were also where he and his fellow members or partners had their vineyards. But he didn't do that. There is another book, it's called the Baldini, that was written also in those years, 1880-something, that listed the more prestigious vineyards of Barolo and Barbaresco, and all the single vineyards that we are making now are in the list plus others. So I don't think there was they were very specific. Again, the idea of, you know, some vineyards being superior or being different was there, but uh, the actual work of rating them was never really done until recently. And even when we started to do recently with the consortium, <laughs> it was too late to do a, a quality rate. So all the vineyards now are officially mapped and registered, both in Barolo and Barbaresco. So if I want to write Ovello, my label, I do have to prove that I have two acres. And if I have two acres, I can make 4,000 bottles, no one more. It's like each vineyard is like a mini DOCG. But uh, the next step, the rating of the vineyards will take uh, a long time, a lot of discussion, and it's difficult to do in a democracy. You need uh, a king or a marquise that says this is first growth, this is second growth, this is third growth. To prove that scientifically is impossible. Amongst those nine vineyards, I think historically, some of the ones that have been really famous are Asili and Rabaya. But yes. it sounds like over time, vineyards like Montefico have become more famous. Yes. Right? And in fact, when Cavazza started, his vineyards were in Pora. It was spelled with a double R. And Pora was a, a prime site for Barbaresco. So no, Azili Rabaya became great, famous, really from the 60s. I still remember when Soritildin was a Whitfield. So, you know, things moved really dramatically in the new phase of Barbaresco life. But those vineyards claim to fame came because uh, when winemakers started to approach winemaking in a more precise, serious way, when uh, wineries started to estate bottle more and more, then all of a sudden the quality of certain areas became evident. And so very fast, Azili became uh, a prime site, Rabaya became a prime site. Montefico was for many years kind of a hidden uh, treasure in Barbaresco because if you went to Barbaresco in the 70s, in the 80s, and you ask about Montefico among the farmers and the growers, everybody was telling you, oh, that's a great site for Nebbiolo. It was clear that Montefico was a great vineyard, but for some reason was never really promoted as such. Maybe because uh, there was not enough famous producers making wine there, or no, just by chance, it didn't really get his claim to fame until uh, more recently. You know, when I talk to a lot of people, in Barolo or Barbaresco, they have their parcel in a vineyard. But you work with about 50 different families today. And so I imagine in the same vineyard, you may have multiple parcels that you're ultimately getting fruit from that maybe have different exposures within the same vineyard, or maybe there's more sand, or maybe there's more clay. And so you kind of have a unique view on some of these nine vineyards and a whole lot of other vineyards as well. Yes. And uh, I think it's a plus for us, like in the Ovello, which is a large vineyard with similar soil but multiple exposure we have 12 farmers and then all these vineyards now the azil is southwest exposed but it's a bowl so there is a kind of a full south part of azil and then a more southwest and a little bit of southeast rabayar your sword are more like slopes with definitely one single exposure but in general you have multiple exposure and then you have different altitude the top of the hill the bottom of the hill 
And the fact that we have multiple farmers and multiple plots allow us to source the best grapes in any given vintage. So in a very hot vintage, it may be this southeast side of Vasili that is a little better than the full south, or it may be the bottom of the hill of Rabaya, which is a little better than the top of the hill, which is too hot. We can actually play with that. Some of the vineyards we have are small, like Paillet. We don't have much holding there. So most of the Paillet grapes are actually going into the Paillet single vineyard. Azili, at least 80% goes into the Azili vineyard because we don't have a lot there. But like some of the others, we have larger holdings, Rabaya, Monte Stefano, Ovello. So we really can cherry pick the best of the best to make the vineyards and the other grapes go in the the Barbaresco. So in any given vintage in our standard Barbaresco, you find a lot of grapes that are officially Rabaya, Monte Stefano, Moncagatta, Rio Sordo, and then uh, the best from those vineyards, they go in the single vineyard bottling. So something you do that's kind of a unique decision is that you decide to make all nine or none. And why do you choose to do that? I mean, uh, theoretically, you could have a real strong vintage in Asili one year, and maybe it didn't work out so well on a different crew, and you'd want to just make a handful of crews, but you guys don't do that. You make nine or zero. We don't do that to keep everybody happy, to avoid, because in the long term, it may create some tension among the farmers. No, it, it's always, no, it's a cooperative, it's, it's a multiple ownership, so it, you need to be a little careful with that. Honestly, you know, the, the village of Barbaresco is small. Uh, the actual village is probably two miles by three. So it's rare that Azil is good and Ovel is not so good. It may happen, but it's rare. Normally, if it's a good vintage, it's a good vintage pretty much everywhere. Then our f- our main focus is to have an outstanding Barbaresco. Our standard Barbaresco is half of what we produce, even more, is the flagship of the winery. We want to make sure that if we make the single vineyards, we are going to release also a very good Barbaresco. If that is not the case, if by making the single vineyards, the Barbaresco is a little too weak or not so interesting, we just give the single vineyards up. We rather give up the single vineyards and not lose some money, but be able to tell to our customers, this is the best possible Barbaresco from that given vintage. So 2010 would be an example of that, Exactly. Right? It's a good vintage with a very good reputation, but honestly, it was a little better in Barolo than Barbaresco. There was some rain in September, uh, one rainy day per week, the first three weeks of September. In between the rainy days, a lot of sunshine. So no issues with botrytis, no problem with health for the grapes, but the soil didn't quite dry out too much. It stayed wet through September, a little too wet. The last rainy day was September 18. And after that, uh, we just could see those berries starting to lose their tension. And it was just too risky to wait much longer. Another rain would be fatal in Barbaresco. So we called in a rush and we started picking on the 23rd of September. And by October 4th, we were finished. Now, in Barolo, they had the same uh, pattern of rain, but their skins are a little more resistant there than Nebbiolo in the Barolo terroir gives a little more rough skins. So they were able to wait longer. So they picked much later. They usually pick later, but this in 2010, more than normal. And they were able to benefit from the sunny, dry conditions that we had uh, at the end of September, beginning of October. So the 
The 2010 Barolos are outstanding, but they're not big. It's called a classic vintage, you know, kind of a medium body, extremely beautiful, aromatic. Barbaresco is almost there, but not quite. So we decided now if we, we can make the single vineyards, maybe a little less quantity of each nine, but then we're going to have a, a weak, uh, kind of a not so interesting Barbaresco. So let's give them up. It was a little bit controversial because people were expecting them, but uh, it was uh, just too risky. We felt uh, confident doing that. Sometimes we make mistakes. 2006, I still think that we made a mistake not releasing the single vineyards. That was a was a very hot short season with a lot of unripe tannins, very aggressive. But the wine was strong. You know, the, the juice was intense. But we felt that the tannins were too aggressive. The wine was too unbalanced. So we decided by blending together, we had a, a nicer rounder wine. But maybe we, if we made the single vineyards, they would have been tough to drink young, but the potential was there. But again, no, when, once you make the decision, normally the decision is done, is made in the spring after the harvest. So most of the time, unless the vintage is terrible, we do vinify the potential single vineyards separate. And then in the spring, we decide are we going to keep them separate or just blend them together? And that's when we made the decision in uh, after the 2010 vintage in the spring of 2011. So in 2010, because you guys harvest generally earlier in Barbaresco than Barolo, it was more challenging for you. But in a vintage like 2005, that actually helped you out, right? Uh, yes, because in 2005, it was one of those rare vintages of the new millennium where we actually had a lot of rain in October. It's not the case anymore. No, normally we have this very dry, long end of the season, but we had a week of rain coming on October 2nd. We experienced this classic uh, foggy, rainy week, and the grapes couldn't really dry. But thanks to the accuracy of the weather report, we knew that this rain was coming. So we called the harvest, again, a little earlier than uh, we normally did. We started on the 23rd, and it, was, it still is up to this point our fastest harvest. It took uh, eight days to go through the picking. On September 30th, we finished the harvest, and in October 2nd, the rain came and stayed. Now, Barbaresco was finished with the harvest at that point. Barolo was cut half the way through, or just at the beginning. So in Barolo 2005, there's a little more up and down quality, depending on if they picked before the rain, they had a little unripe grapes. If they picked after the rain, the rain was a problem. Barbaresco was more solid. So we like the, I like the 2005 vintage. It's very bright, ripe, intense cherry fruit and a good acidity in the finish, medium body, but right now, these days, is showing beautifully. Another vintage where Barbaresco a little bit outperformed Barolo was 2014, which of course is uh, considered not a very good vintage in many regions in Europe, but Barbaresco did very well because we had a very wet first part of the season, but a very dry end of the season. August and September, virtually no rain in Barbaresco. So the grapes were late in ripening because of the wet and cold uh, first part of the summer, but we were able to wait and pick very late. We started the harvest on October 12th, which is extremely late for the new millennium standards. And we finished on the 24th, but we brought in very good grapes, good aromatic, so the 14 is a brilliant vintage. Again, medium body, not full body, but very interesting in Barbaresco. While Barolo, they did add some extra rain in September that we didn't. 
one of those rare cases when the weather pattern is different. Normally, the difference in quality that may occur between Barolo and Babresco is because of the different time picking, the different ripening time. But in 2014, while Barbaresco experienced no rainfall in September, Barolo had at least two rainy days. And so that added up to the all the rainfall that came in the first part of the season and made the quality a little lighter than ideal. And you're going to do the cruise in 14? Yes, we decided uh, we kept them separate. We weren't sure, but we kept them separate. And by the spring, we decided, no, this is good material, good uh, single vineyard material. So we're going to release the cruise 2014 in 2019. It's going to be an interesting release because people don't expect much from the vintage again. But I'm sure that by the time we will be there releasing the wine, the reputation will be there. The 2014 Barbarescos are out in uh, 2017 and now they're very well received, not just from Produttore, but in general from all the producers in Barbaresco. So the connoisseurs know that 14 in Barbaresco is quite interesting vintage. On the light side, though, definitely. So more like a five in the way it drinks. Exactly, very similar to a five. A little more aromatic, a little more intense, but that type of vintage. We now we, we really don't have bad vintages anymore, but in the old days we had vintages that were unripe and so bad, or vintages that were just ripe. Now we have vintages which are ripe or super ripe. It's really a dramatic change in the climatic pattern, which uh, consequently a change in the a little bit change in the vineyard management and in the man- vinifications. I know. Again, I remember the days when everything was done in the vineyards to expose the grapes to the sun as much as possible. And now all of a sudden it's not that important anymore. You can leave some extra leaves around the grapes because we actually need some shade. (laughs) And green harvest, still very important, but not dramatically important like it was in the 90s because even a couple of extra grapes can ripe more easily. So we don't do extreme low yield, but no kind of a balanced yield is more the norm these days. Like I remember when uh, those hail nets, nets that you put along the rows to protect from hail, they were not really used because they were shadowing the grapes. So yes, you protect your grapes, your crop from the hail, but you lose some uh, bricks because you get extra shade. And now, also because the grapes are so much more valuable, but you see more and more of those because the extra shade is actually not much of a problem anymore. So now it's changing the management of the vineyards due to the new climate. When did you first start to realize that? When did it first dawn on you that the climate was changing? 97 was the first year. Of course, we didn't realize at that point. It just seemed an unusually warm and ripe vintage, very easy to drink, 97. Then I remember the 2000 was another vintage like that, 98 and 99, not so much. I remember 2000, we discussed, oh, this is so soft, so ripe. Maybe we should release the single vineyards, not as Reserva, because it doesn't seem like they need so much time. They seem so drinkable. And so there was another vintage where really global warming was experienced. And then up and down, 2003, super hot, even almost too hot. In fact, 2003... We still say it's the last bad vintage that we had, and the reason was bad because it was too hot. We never reached that point anymore, but we are having more and more of these super ripe uh, vintages. In a way, the, the average quality of the wines by Roland Barbaresco is much higher now. You don't really have those unripe tannins or lean character in the wines. 
course, the great vintages are always the great vintages. The great vineyards are always the great vineyards, but the average vineyards are much better in quality now than uh, 30, 40 years ago because it's warmer. And another reason why there's more Nebbiolo planted is because you can actually now plant Nebbiolo facing due east, where it was really tricky in the old days, but now due east is warm enough. Sometimes actually is even better than full south. So no, it's uh, all this change. So you have more Nebbiolo planted in within Barolo and Barbaresco because the grapes can ripe, and then more Nebbiolo planted outside Barolo and Barbaresco to make Lange Nebbiolo. So it's really a trend to plant more and more Nebbiolo, is the, which you know is, uh, is the grape that does the best result in the Lange region anyway. So you said that Montefico may have benefited from a change in climate towards those kind of vintages that you're talking about. Are there other vineyards that maybe have benefited that aren't made into crews by you that you work? Yeah, we have a grower in a vineyard called San Cristoforo, which is in Neve, a little high elevation. And it's at least uh, 12, 15 years that we are getting phenomenal grapes from there, which is good for the basic Barbaresco. No, I almost thought of... Uh, releasing a San Cristoforo because the the color concentration, the aromatic, the, the just beautiful grapes there. And again, that wasn't a particularly famous uh, site, but you can see that it is benefiting from the warmer climate. Ovello is one of those areas. Ovello is the f- northern tip of the Barbaresco village. And uh, when you leave the Ovello going north, you drop down into the valley. And from the Ovello, you can see the Mont Blanc, the Matternhorn. So the Ovello vineyard is the one that is more exposed to the northern winds. When we have northern winds, which is, we have northern winds mainly in the first part of the season, they come down from the Swiss Alps and they're cold. So the Ovello region is a cool area. In fact, the bud break in Ovello is a little later from, compared to Azili or Rabaya. And so Ovello is normally doing its best in hot vintages because it, it retains a little more brightness and freshness in the fruit. And another vineyard that always has a little a nice uh, higher acidity and bright fruit is Paillé, which does very well in uh, hot vintages. While the famous vineyards, now Rabaya, Azili, when it's too hot, now they may suffer a little bit because they are, they are warmer sites. Do you think in another, say, 50 years, we might be looking at a, a different set of famous crews? Or? <laughs> it, it may be. <laughs> it may be because uh, you know, things are changing. And it may even be that we will have to move up in elevation, in altitude, because uh, you know, it's, it's quite dramatic uh, what is happening. It's, the one thing that is almost impossible to do in Italy is to change the borders of a DOCG. That's the one golden rule for the national committee. You know, they never do. The only one exception was Prosecco a few years ago, but that's no. It's a different scale of. But normally, it's impossible. You can as a the DOCG system works that if the majority of the wine producers want to change one rule, they submit to the national committee, and usually is accepted. Like if you wanna increase or reduce the time in oak, or if you wanna change uh, something about the minimum acidity, the maximum alcohol, or the type of cork that you use, if it's natural, you can apply and is either accepted or, or rejected. But the one thing that is always rejected is a change in the border. But if the climate keeps on changing like that, we may have to go a little further up. Uh, it's not the case in Barbaresco, but in the Barolo region, some of the villages are only part of the appellation, like Monforte. Only the, the lower part of Monfort is, is part of Barolo. But no, now, probably, 
the higher elevation in Monforte, which are, were traditionally used for Barbera, they're probably very good for Nebbiolo at this point. So that can be a change that can happen, not to put the full Monforte village in the Barolo appellation. How do you think the Tanaro plays into the character of certain Barbaresco? Uh, the Tanaro, first of all, is the, the river Tanaro is the first reason why Barolo and Barbaresco are different. Because Barbaresco, and it's very clear when you visit the area, is very open on the river. Now, when you stand in the Barbaresco village, you look west, you look down in the valley, you see the river below you, you see the mountains in the distance, beautiful view. While when you walk around the Barolo village, you walk in a valley and you are surrounded by hills, Novello, La Morra, Monforte, above you. The altitude on the sea level of both villages is exactly the same, 273 meters. So they lay at the same altitude, but Barolo is in a valley and Barbaresco is on the top of the hill. For most of the Barolo vineyards, you don't see the river. There is the what we call the La Morra Novello Ridge, the blocks the river influence into Barolo, uh, while Barbaresco really is open, which creates, uh, you know, we have the same climate, but a different microclimate. We have a little more humidity in the air through the growing season in Barbaresco, and that's why our grapes, skins are a little, little more fragile. So at the end of the season, there's a point where we may have to pick while Barolo can stand a little longer. But we have a little warmer early spring uh, mornings in Barbaresco, so our bud break is a little earlier. The middle of the summer day is a little less hot, though, because the breeze from the river keeps it a little cooler, a little bit. And we have more foggy days in, uh, in the winter, and then when we have fog or mist lingering on the hills, maybe it lingers for a couple of extra hours in Barbaresco, more so than in Barolo. So the microclimate is a little different. And then soil-wise, you know, our hills got mixed with the valley floor a little bit more than Barolo, where the Lamora Ridge was preventing that. So the texture of the soil of both areas is the same, calcium and clay, but the composition of the soil, in Barbaresco we have a little richer soil, a little more nitrogen, a little more potassium, things that the plant eat are a little higher in concentration in Barbaresco compared to, to Barolo. So our wines, Barbaresco, tend to be a little lighter on the palate and Barolo a little sturdier, a little more mouth-filling, really. Because Barbaresco is just as tannic as Barolo. It's the middle palate of Barolo that is fuller. Now, the vineyards closer to the river, in within Barbaresco, they do feel more, a little bit of that effect from the river. So again, Paillé, Pora, Rio Sordo, even Azili, they have a slightly softer tannic character. Uh, soft is a big word, but definitely softer than some of the others because there's not a, as much calcium in the soil and there's a little richer soil. When you go on the other side to Montefico, Monte Stefano, poorer soil, a little more compact, more powerful tannins there because they are a little farther away from the river. When you do replants or when the farmer does replants, do you have recommendations or is there a certain vine material that you tend to work with? The University of Torino did a great job in the 80s and uh, early 90s. They selected a number of uh, mother plants, which were selected uh, with a quality focus, and not just uh, vigor, like it was done in the 50s and the 60s. And then from these mother plants, they reproduced clones that virus-free and that made them available to the nurseries. So when one of my growers or anybody, in fact, goes and buy certified 
material. They're buying these uh, clones, which have been selected with a quality idea, with maybe low vigor or good color production, good sugar accumulation. And we are pretty confident that the new planting are planted with very good material, thanks to this work that was done. In fact, uh, this is a, a golden age for Nebbiolo in general, Barolo and Barbaresco, because the vineyards planted in the last uh, 25 years are planted with very good clones. And the old vineyards, which were planted with just vigorous mother plants, are now old enough to produce quality. There's never been such a time with such a good uh, potential material in the fields. And we can see that because the clones we use and the vineyards we work with are much better than they were used to be. And what about drinking windows for the different wines? I mean, what do you suggest? And it, does it vary vintage to vintage? Or? It varies a little bit, yeah, of course. In the vintages from the new millennium, I would say that they peak between 8 and 12 years of age. I can see that. Now, it's a little earlier than in the past. If you taste now 2007, 2005, they're beautiful to drink. 2008 may require maybe a few more years, but it's already enjoyable. So 8 to 12 years is normally... Uh, and this is true for both big vintages and medium body vintages. Now, they, of course, they show a different personality, but that is their their peak times, I would say. Funny enough, sometimes you know, a big vintage is big, but it's also very ripe, so it's quite drinkable young, like the 11 was, or the 15 will be. While medium body vintages, sometimes they're a little more restrained, so they actually require a little more time. You, know, you may expect them to be ready earlier, but it's not necessarily the case. But I would say 8 to 12 years is pretty much the right time. Then, and of course, you can go up to 20. And uh, it becomes, after 15 years, it becomes a little more unpredictable. Each bottle may have its own story. You were speaking earlier about how Nebbiolo was so much more expensive and hard to sell in the 50s and the 60s, coming out of World War II. And now it feels like having only Nebbiolo is kind of holding aces in a way in the market. So have you seen different market receptions in different areas and what have those been? Yeah, quite a change. You know, the the export market exploded in the late 80s, of course, and uh, that really made a big difference in the area. And some markets more than others, like when the American market opened up, it really kept on growing. There's been a, a wider and wider increase of knowledge about uh, Barolo and Barbaresco in general, Piemonte wines in general. While some other markets, the first market that opened up is the Swiss market or the German market, but they stayed pretty much where they were. So the amount of wine that we sell in Switzerland now is the same that we sold uh, in the early 90s. While in the States, in the UK, the Scandinavian market really growing fast. So different markets reacted in a different way. A lot has to do with the the restaurant scene, our wines are really strong, productory, especially in, in the restaurant market. Now, it's productory wines are good wines for restaurants because uh, the price is fair. And our wine can be like a top wine in a simple osteria or a, the basic wine in a Mission Star restaurant. So a lot of our market is restaurants. And the quality of the Italian restaurants in the States, in the UK, improved dramatically from the 70s and the 80s. Now the quality is very good, the ingredients are very good, and so good Italian wines go together. 
Like you go to Germany, to Switzerland, you know, the Italian restaurant scene didn't much evolve as much. I really don't know why. It's just uh, maybe because those countries are so close, they just jump in their BMWs and they drive a few hours and they are in Barbaresco, in Barolo, in uh, Valpolicella. So they don't need to have good Italian food at home because they can drive for a weekend anytime. But uh, if you went to do a statistics among uh, Piedmontese wineries, the early 90s, and you ask which one are your three top markets, they will all say US, Switzerland, and Germany. But the order could have been anyone. Now, US will always be number one for all of them. There's no doubt about it. So does that play into the theory on the pricing? Because the pricing has always been kept really reasonable. So is it that desire to kind of be the most expensive wine at the bistro level and then the least expensive wine at the Michelin level? Is that kind of what you're trying to do? No, really. It just happened that way. We we started in the in 1958, or they started, the founders, with the decision to make only Barbaresco. It was a very bold decision. It was a, it was a marketing suicide. I mean, Barbaresco didn't have a market. It was a wine drunk uh, not every day, on special occasions only, which were rare in those days, like weddings or things like that. And at that point, it was a second choice to Barolo. So for a winery to focus on Barbaresco only, it was really crazy. So what they had to do, they had to make a very good product at a fair price. So that reputation stuck with the winery. So this uh, idea of fair price stayed with us and in a way became one of our trademarks. But right now we are under a little bit of pressure because we really run out of wine fast. And so we have to increase the price a little bit or a bit just to select the markets in a way. Otherwise, we cannot manage it. But there is a, a feeling that wow, we should really increase the price. You know, it's how well, people can react to that. But we actually did the head to a little bit because uh, wines that were used to sell out in 15 months, now they sell out in eight months. And it's not a good policy to stay out of wine for too long. <laughs> So for the future of Barbaresco, I mean, I think you've been very articulate about some of the challenges in the past for Barbaresco as a wine and a name in the market. So Gaia has returned to the Barbaresco appellation, and you have found a lot more success recently with the wine selling out sooner. So how do you see this progressing? What's going to happen with Barbaresco as a name, as a place, as a viticultural region in the market? Right now, the future looks bright. Now, the concern that we have is about this climate that may actually go over the top and create some issues in you know, what we're going to do. You know, some vineyards may just be too hot if the trend continues like this. So that's a challenge that we are thinking about what we cannot really control. When it comes to the market, I just I can't see how it, anything can go wrong because the winemakers are very much aware that... Uh, they have to deliver quality. And shortcuts are no longer tolerated like they were in the 70s, in the 80s. No? So everybody's focused, not just the produttori, but in general. And the name is strong now. Now, there is a, um, a tendency among some of the uh, Barbaresco producers, they would like to have... Uh, more of a reputation on their own. They would like to be considered without thinking about Barolo. So they would like to promote the wine in a different way, do things different or a little bit of... 
But I don't think so. I think the the synergy between Barolo and Barbaresco works perfectly, at least for us. You know, I like to ride my bike, and is the perf- Barbaresco is in the perfect situation. Is behind the strong guy in front of you that makes you f- for you easier to ride fast. So in a way, uh, yes, we are uh, smaller than Barolo. Yes, uh, we are maybe a little less famous, but by being promoted together by having the same consortium, Barol and Barbaresco, by working together, we can benefit from uh, the fame of Barolo, and we did uh, until now. At this point, in the at least in the more sophisticated market like the US or UK, Barbaresco has his own status. Again, it goes with Barolo when we do the promotion, and it's good, but uh, people think about Barbaresco as a top wine. When you go to the uh, new markets, you know, the Far East or then maybe, or Brazil, Barolo still has a hedge on Barbaresco and it's probably more Barolo sold and, and more Barolo appreciated, but uh, we really don't need to expand those markets much because the area is limited. So I, I see the future quite brilliant for the area. Aldo Vaca works at a winery and in a region with its own status. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you. Aldo Vaca of the Potatori del Barbaresco in Barbaresco in Piemonte, Italy. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening. Farmers in general are very savvy. And the Lange is a land of farmers. Even famous names like Conterno, Gaiano, three generations ago were basically farmers or small. So there's a tendency of not wasting. <laughs>